If you have a Bible, open to Exodus chapter 5. Exodus chapter 5, like Jed said, we're going to continue to work through um, our series in the book of Exodus. And um, we've got two chapters that we're going to try to get through uh, this morning. Let me, let me pray for us and just ask God to help us in our, in our time together. Father in heaven, I thank you for uh, this day. God, it's a day that you've made that we rejoice and be glad in it. God, I thank you for your mercy that is fresh and new this morning. I thank you for your word. God, I thank you for how it lights our path and our way. God, I thank you for how relevant it is to our human experience. God, how helpful it is in all matters of life. Holy Spirit, I pray that in this uh, time that you would control me. Um, God, I pray that you would help us to see what you have us to see. God, I pray that we would hear from you. Um, and God, I pray that you would move with freedom. Holy Spirit, give us a, a, just a supernatural understanding of your presence and your power in this moment. Jesus, I love you. Um, this is always and only for your fame. And I ask these things in your name. Amen. How many of you, you've ever tried to do the right thing, but it just went like horribly wrong? It's just like massive fail. You tried to do the right thing. You thought you were doing the right thing. And it just like really just was a colossal failure. I, I was trying to think of a personal illustration on that. And I just kind of coming back to like gifts that I had bought my wife or like things I'd done on Valentine's. I was like, I don't know if I want to share those. Um, but no, later at men's breakfast, I'll share it with Cruz. Um, but we have all like had that kind of experience, like where we thought we were doing the right thing professionally and didn't work out, or the right thing in your marriage and didn't work out, the right thing with your kids and it didn't go the way that you thought it was, the right thing financially you felt like was the right thing to do and it, and it just didn't work out. And this morning, we're going to see in the scene in the life of Moses how we're to deal with disappointments and discouragement. Last week, our story ended with Moses and Aaron and the elders um, before the people, and they had some great news. So if, if, uh, if you missed last week, uh, you got to go back and, and see how, what Ty taught on it. It was really great. But chapter 4 ends like this. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. Moses had a meeting with God. Now they're telling all the people. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and they worshiped. Like, so the signs that they're doing, they're not magic tricks. They're, they're acts of God that are outside of the natural order. They're meant to communicate something greater. And so God's just not showing off. He's trying to communicate, and the people get that. And because they know, like, okay, God's, God's speaking to us. That means he hears us. It means he's seen us. They fall on their face and worship. God's heard us, and he's saved us, which takes us to chapter 5. So that's kind of what the scene is, chapter 5. And I'll read through um, really all of chapter 5, and we'll put the text up on the screen. So afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Uh-oh. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with a sword. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you talking 
Why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to work. Then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you are stopping them from working. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They're lazy. That is why they're crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Then the slave drivers and the overseers went out and said to the people, this is what the Pharaoh says, I will not give you any more straw. Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. The slave drivers keep pressing them, saying, complete the work required of you for each day, just as when you had straw. And Pharaoh's slave drivers beat the Israelite overseers they had appointed, demanding, why haven't you met your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? Then the Israelite overseers went and appealed to Pharaoh, why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet we are told, make bricks. Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people. Pharaoh said, lazy, that's what you are, lazy. That is why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice the Lord. Now get to work. You will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. The Israelite overseers realized they were in trouble when they were told, you are not to reduce the number of bricks required for you each day. And when they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And they said, may the Lord look on you and judge you. You've made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. So Moses, he returned to the Lord and he said, why, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's brought trouble on this people and you've not rescued your people at all. So there's excitement about what's going to happen at the, end of verse four, at the end of chapter 4. God heard us. There's hope. And then it just gets like really bad for them. One pastor, he refers to this scene as the anatomy of disappointment. And it's where Moses has experienced a harsh reality that shattered a hopeful expectation. Disappointment always starts with hope. It, it's really hard uh, to be disappointed if you first didn't hope that something would be different. And, and we know nobody here is exempt from disappointment. Some part of your life is not what we envisioned it would be. Some part of your life, you're not, it's not what you hoped it would be. Financially, you're not where you had hoped that you would, would be. Relationally, professionally, you're not where you hoped that you would be. Maybe even spiritually, I'm just not where I had hoped to be. And disappointment, it shatters dreams, it erodes our confidence, it highlights our failures, it frustrates this belief that uh, we are not limited, that we can do anything. Disappointment, discouragement, it makes us feel alone. It creates doubt and fear. It makes us question God. It makes us ask questions like, is God even here? Is God even real? Can I even trust him? This is why we need to read the Bible honestly, because the Bible shows us what it's like to live in a world that's been broken by sin. And it shows people who, like you and I, experience disappointment and who question God. And in those places of that harsh reality, God speaks. He's not silent. 
In Matthew chapter 11, there's this moment with a guy named John the Baptist. And, and John the Baptist, he's the cousin of Jesus. He's the one who went before Jesus, and he was proclaiming and telling about the Messiah, who is Jesus, who was coming. And in Matthew chapter 11, John, he finds himself in prison. And he's in prison because he had called out this, room, this Roman ruler in Jerusalem who divorced his wife, and he's now sleeping with someone who's not his wife. And so that gets him thrown in, in prison. And it's strange for him because he understands himself to be the front runner of Jesus. He is. And he's been faithful in what he's been given to do. In fact, Jesus even says of John, he says, there, there, there is no one greater born of man than John the Baptist. But yet here's John in prison waiting for a death sentence. And so Matthew 11, this, this is what happens. John, verse 2 and 3, John, when he's in prison, he heard about the deeds of the Messiah and he sent his disciples, he sent his followers, and he says, go, go ask him, are, are you the one who is to come, or, or should we expect someone else? Uh, did, did I miss something? Is this, are you who I thought you were? Is there something else, like, is there another plan? Is there anything else that's, like, coming? Because John's thinking, I'm hearing a lot of good stuff about you, Jesus, but why am I in prison? Because I, I have, I've been faithfully preaching. I'm committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm eating locusts and honey. I mean, I'm out here. I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. But something just doesn't feel right with this picture. Listen to how Jesus responds. He says, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. What Jesus is doing there, he's quoting from the prophet Isaiah when the prophet Isaiah is talking about the coming Messiah. So Jesus quotes Isaiah, but he leaves out one line. He leaves out one line when he responds to John. The very last line of that prophetic word from Isaiah is this. The prisoners will be set free. Now, you might not have that content memorized, but that, John would have heard that. He would have, he would have known that there was a line that was missing. And he would have been like, Is that, that's it? That's all he said? There's not like, you, didn't, you don't like forget one thing? There's like not one more phrase that you want to say that he said? <laughs> Jesus is saying to John, I am the promised Messiah, and you're going to die in prison. But you're blessed. And the Bible is full of these kinds of stories. There's the prophet Jeremiah. God says, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you a message for the people, and your, your words are going to be powerful. And Jeremiah goes, and he gives the people the message, and he winds up getting beaten, thrown in prison, thrown bloody into a ditch. And Jeremiah, the prophet, he says this to God. He says, God, you deceived me. I'm a laughingstock in front of these people. My words don't have power. They get me beat up. David, in the, in the scriptures, David, he writes most of the Psalms. He writes this one. He says, he says, one thing I ask, and all I seek is to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. What, that, what an amazing thing to want in your life. One thing I ask, all I seek. David desperately wants to build this temple. That would be the dwelling place for God. And God says, nope, because you're a man of war and you've shed blood. Who told David to go out and fight the Philistine army? God. 
David loves God. And, and God says of David, he's a man after my own heart. But he doesn't get to fulfill his dream of building the temple. Spoiler alert for Exodus. Moses doesn't make it into the promised land. I don't feel bad for spoiling that. This book's like super old. You could have read that a long time ago. <laughs> Moses is faithful this whole, on this whole thing. God says, nope, not you, bud. And there's story after story like that in the scriptures. So are those just like all just massive letdowns? Is that what that is? No. Because look what we're doing here today in Gilbert, Arizona, thousands of years later, we're worshiping Jesus together. Their stories, the stories went differently than they thought they would. But God has done exactly as he intended. And so that means we are to just be faithful, ordinary people, one day at a time, faithfully doing what God has called us to do. And God is the one who accomplishes his plan and purposes. We need to read the Bible honestly so that we are not surprised in the day of trouble. We need to read it honestly so when trouble comes, we're not shocked or surprised by it. Peter writes this uh, to a persecuted church. The church is being persecuted, and he writes this in 1 Peter 4. He says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Eugene Peterson wrote a paraphrase of this called, called The Message. I like how he breaks this down. He says, friends, when life gets really difficult, don't jump to the conclusion that God isn't on the job. Instead, be glad that you are in the very thick of what Christ himself experienced. This is just a spiritual refining process, I like this, with glory just around the corner. He says, if you're abused because of Christ, count yourself fortunate. It's the Spirit of God and His glory in you that brought you to the notice of others. If they're on you because you broke the law, disturbed the peace, that's a different matter. But if it's because you're a Christian, don't give it a second thought. Be proud of the distinguished status reflected in that name. So if you find life difficult... Because you're doing what God said. Take it in stride. Trust him. He knows what he's doing. And he'll keep on doing it. Now, I'm not saying that if we aren't surprised by trouble, it will hurt less. Because it won't hurt less. But it will point us to the cross. And at the cross, that's the objective evidence that God is for us and not against us. Because he sacrificed his own son to purchase us as sons and daughters by his blood. So that's chapter five. Turn to chapter six, because there's three things that I believe God wants us and Moses to know in times of disappointment. There's three things that God wants Moses to know in his disappointment. Look at verse one, chapter six. Then the Lord said to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. And God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, 
to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty. But my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I've remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will bring you to the land I swore with an uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord." So Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labor. Then the Lord said to Moses, go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of his country. But Moses said to the Lord, if the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me? Since I speak with faltering lips. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron about the Israelites and Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he commanded them to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. Three things that God wants Moses to know in the middle of his disappointment. The first thing that Moses needs to know, that we need to know, is that there's a problem. There's a problem. Because in verse 1, God's repeating himself. He's not giving Moses any new information. He's telling him things that he already has heard from the, from the mouth of God. Because things didn't go as Moses expected. Moses goes to Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, I, I don't know the God you're talking about. I know the Egyptian gods, but I don't know your God. So Moses says to God, why, why did you, why'd you even send me there? Why didn't you rescue? Why didn't you do, God, what I thought you should do? Why did things get worse, not better? And I love how God answers Moses again. He just says, Moses, I am the Lord. In other words, God is saying, Moses, you don't, you don't know me the way that you should and in fact, you sound a little bit like Pharaoh right now. It, last week, I love that Ty made this point. It was so good. He just said, God's not just dealing with Pharaoh. He's dealing with the Pharaoh that's in Moses. And God is saying, Moses, you have a problem. Israel has a problem. And their problem is bigger than the Egypt that is around them. Their problem is the sin that is inside them. They're not just victims of external evil, they're sick with sin. And this disappointment exposes the true condition of their hearts. We are like Moses and Israel in this way. There, there's this evil that's outside of us from which we could be protected, but there's an evil that's inside of us from which we need to be saved. So the first thing that God does when Moses comes back is actually to confront Moses. And he says, your moment of disappointment has exposed your heart. You don't know me like you should. Pay attention to what comes out of you in your disappointment and in your discouragement. Now, God's not trying to shame Moses because his response is understandable, but it's something that Moses has to recognize and something has to pay attention to. Moses, you have a problem. God says, Moses, you need to know first you have a problem. Second, he's like, you need to know there's a plan. You, there's a problem. You have a problem. But I have a plan. Moses comes to God and, God, and Moses wants to talk about his current circumstances. Moses wants to talk about Pharaoh, and he wants to talk about slavery. He wants to talk about the pain and the hurt and the struggle. But when God responds to him, he starts talking about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He's, he's talking about covenant. He's talking about promises. 
God's reminding Moses there's a plan. There is a profound reality, a story that God is writing that Moses has been invited into. And there is a plan, Moses, that goes beyond your pain. God says, there's a plan that I have that goes far beyond your momentary pain. There's a beautiful story, a plan that makes your pain worth it. But it won't be painless. It's not going to be easy. It won't be filled with comfort. God, God mentions Abraham. Abraham's story wasn't painless. If you know Abraham's story, he, they want, he wanted children, not having kids, finally has a son, Isaac. God says, I want you to take Isaac up on that mountain and sacrifice him. It's not painless. And, and as Abraham's finally walking in obedience, at the moment of sacrifice, God provides a ram as a substitute. God is saying, I have a plan And Moses doesn't realize this, but Abraham's story actually points to the day where God will be on a hill with his own son. And on that day, God will not spare his own son in his obedience so that on this day, he can spare you in your sin. God says, there's a plan. In verse 6, he says, I'm going to liberate you. You you can't see it now, but I'm going to redeem you. I'll make your enemies pay. I will adopt you. You will no longer be slaves. You will be sons and daughters. I will bless you. I will be with you. I'm going to give you a land that you can call your own. And God not only paints a picture of the past, but also the future. He says the pain in this is not pointless. Moses, I know it hurts, but it's of great value. It's part of something bigger that I'm doing. There, There was a missionary named Jim Elliott. And he was a missionary to uh, the country of Ecuador. And on his second interaction with this tribe, this people group that he was there ministering to, he and his missionary friends were speared to death on the riverbank. Before he left on that trip where he lost his life, he had a conversation with his wife, Elizabeth. And she asked him, Jim, if they attack you, these people that you're going to meet, it's only the second time that you'll interact with them. These people that you're going to minister, that you're going to meet, if they attack you, she says, will you use your guns against them to defend yourself? And he said, no, we won't. And she asked, well, well, why not? And he looked at her and he said, because we are ready for heaven, but they are not. And Jim Elliott knew God's doing something that is bigger than my life. His plan is bigger than my pain. His plan's bigger than my fears. His plan's bigger than my risk. And as his wife dealt with the pain of his death in the days and months and years past, she knew he did not die in vain because his death was part of something bigger and more beautiful. In our disappointment, and in this disappointment, God wants Moses to know, yeah, there's a problem. There's a plan. And finally, there's a prize. Verse 3, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty. He says, but my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. Now, it doesn't mean that Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob never heard God's name. He's saying that when this is all over, when when you see everything that I'm going to do, Moses, you will know me in ways that Abraham never did. You will know another level of my character. You will know me as savior and know me as redeemer and know me as faithful in the ways that those guys never got to experience or see. In other words, when you're done with all of this, the prize for you is that you will know me with greater clarity and greater intimacy than you have known before. God says, look, I know 
I know it's painful. But it will posture you to see me and know me as the great I am. That's what you get. That's the prize. That's the reward. You see, if the Israelites, if they, if they make it out of Egypt, but they still don't know God, they're still slaves. The chains are gone, but they're still in slavery. But to know him is the prize. He's the reward. So Moses takes this message, this speech, God, God's response, and he, and he takes it to the people. Verse 9, Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement. The ESV says because of their broken spirit and their harsh labor. Again, the Bible is showing us what life is like in a broken world. The people are discouraged with broken spirits, and that can be us too. The pattern of the Christian life is that upon salvation, you get God, you get closeness, you get relationship and the promise of a good life. And some of those promises are immediate. No shame, no guilt, no condemnation, no distance between you and God. But some of those promises are future. No tears, no pain, no death. Those are the ones that we're waiting for. And I think sometimes we forget that waiting is a part of the Christian life. Because our tendency is to follow the pattern of Moses, not Jesus. We can forget that the pattern of following the life of Jesus includes waiting. It includes dying. includes suffering. And when we forget that, we become discouraged. Our spirits can break. Israel forgets this. The chains don't just immediately fall off and their spirits break. You see, the beauty of following Jesus is not that heaven is immediate, but it's that it's guaranteed. And that's where our hope is centered. That's where our hope is anchored in. I I love how the Bible is honest about human suffering. And I know that in this room this morning, some of you, you're, you're hurting, you're suffering. You're disappointed and discouraged and your spirit is broken. And you know all the stuff, you you know the verses, you've heard the verses, you know what's true, but it's just so overwhelming. And it's just all you can do to just like get yourself here. If that's you this morning, if that describes you, listen to me, listen. God hears you. He hears you. God hears the groaning. He hears the crying. He sees you. He hears you. I know there's a reality where your slavery is so harsh, that's all you can see. And what the Israelites do is what we we do so often. They just, they live like they belong to Pharaoh because they just don't see how belonging to God makes any difference. But not God. God. God steps in. He says, Moses, just do what I told you to do. Go. I'm the Lord. Go. Now, in the middle of chapter 6, there's kind of this odd, they're seemingly odd section. It's the genealogy. And I know you all probably get super hype on genealogy, but um, this is why that's there. He, God wants to show them that they belong to the family of God and they have authority to be his servants. This also indicates that they've been prepared by and for God for the task before them. There's a commentator named Peter Enns. He says, the reference to the patriarchal period highlights, and I love this phrase, the ancient purposefulness of God and his plan to redeem Israel. The genealogy, it ends with this guy, Phineas, who's an important character in the Old Testament. Phineas is the grandson of Aaron. And so what God's doing by including this genealogy is he's showing that the purpose and the plan of God, it reaches backwards and it stretches forwards. And what God's trying to 
show here. The point is, Moses, when you feel like quitting, God shows him how he doesn't quit on his people. God continues to be faithful in his promises. When the people worship at the end of chapter 4, God knows what they're going to do at the end of chapter 5. It doesn't say the people worshiped God and God ignored them because he knew it would be short-lived. He receives their worship and he continues to be faithful in their promises. One pastor, he said it this way, God does not view our present worship through the lens of our future failures. God does not view our present worship through the lens of our future failures. They worship, God is faithful. They reject him, God is faithful. God is faithful and true and good. The great I am is who he says he is. The central theme of Exodus chapters 3 through 7 is that God is in control. And it could be, and it could be in your life that your disappointments and that your discouragement actually lead you towards more of him. Maybe you're going through all of this so that you can look back and say, "Ah, God, I know you now in a way that I would not have known you if things were just normal. And all that pain, all that struggle, all that disappointment, all that discouragement is totally worth it because of how I know you now. Now, if you've ever looked at this, and maybe this is just me, um, and you've kind of wondered about Exodus, like, why does Exodus, like, why is it so drawn out like this? Like, Exodus literally could be like a paragraph in your Bible. God vaporizes Pharaoh and teleports the Israelites to the promised land. <laughs> Amen. Next chapter, right? Why? Why? Is it, I mean, we're going to see all the things that the people of God have to go through, that Moses has to go through. If, if you've ever thought like that, you're in, in good company because John Calvin, in his commentary on this section, he, he lays out like why God is doing things the way that he is. He says, it was indeed possible for God to overwhelm him, meaning Pharaoh, at once by a single nod so that he should even fall down dead at the very sight of Moses. But as he will himself presently declare, he in the first place, meaning first of all, he chose more clearly to lay open his power for if Pharaoh had either voluntarily yielded or had been overcome without effort, the glory of the victory would not have been so illustrious. He says, secondly, he wished this monument to exist of his singular love towards his elect people for by, this is so great, for by contending so perseveringly and so forcibly against the obstinacy of this most powerful king, he gave no doubtful proof of his love towards the church. Third, he wished to accustom his servants in all ages to patience lest they should faint in their minds if he does not immediately answer their prayers and at every moment relieve them from their distresses. Fourth, he wished to show that against all the striving and devices of Satan, against the madness of the ungodly and all worldly hindrances, his hand must always prevail. And to leave us no room to doubt, but that whatever we see opposing us will at length be overcome. By him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. God, I thank you for what you 
did in the Exodus and God, what you're doing now in these days through the Exodus story. And God, I, I pray that you would, even this morning, even in the next few moments, God, I pray that you'd be setting captives free. God, I, I, I pray that you would bring freedom. God, I, I, I pray specifically for the people in this room this morning who are suffering, who are disappointed, who are discouraged. And God, I know it's just an, an act of faith just for them to even be in the room this morning. So I thank you that they are here. God, I thank you for the people in this congregation who are on the other side of suffering, on the other side of disappointment, on the other side of discouragement. And God, that those people can say, God, I see what you did. I see what you did in those days, that there was a plan and that you are the prize. God, I'm thankful for them. And God, lastly, I just pray that God, in our disappointment, in our discouragement, in our pain, that we would not forget your faithfulness. And God, that we would not forget that you are faithful. Jesus, as we come to this moment of communion to remember you and your work, God, our hearts are full. Um, Our hearts are full with gratitude and thanksgiving for who you are and what you've done and what you promised to finish. And I ask these things in your name.